to The New Paris. I'm your host, Lindsay Tremuda. Running a restaurant in Paris is fraught in the best of times, but the last several years have presented a few additional challenges. Some have closed as a result, um, but I'm happy to report that many of the city's best independently run establishments, spanning street food to fine dining, have held on and even grown stronger. I know my own desire to support them has grown as well, certainly a result of having experienced more than six consecutive months of restaurant closures between 2020 and 2021, but so has my desire for more immersive, memorable dining experiences. One of two meals that delivered that for me in the last year was at Kumis, a contemporary family-owned fine dining restaurant in the 16th arrondissement run by Canadians Noam Gedalov, the chef, and today's guest, Atelia Hananova, the sommelier. She talks to me about the journey from Montreal to Paris, the type of dining environment and experience she and Noam set out to create, and what it means to be working in wine in Paris on her own terms. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so Happy glad to, to, to I'm so glad for you to be here because you know you're often in a restaurant, which makes it Very difficult much. to have downtime. Um, yeah. but also I feel like between COVID and being on opposite sides of the city, you and I have been like ships in the night for a very long time until it feels like years. Well, it actually is years, but it has literally know, it, been years. <laughs> well, with the COVID years just blur together. Yeah. So it's it makes it even worse. One long year. One very long year. It's been October forty um, fifth, two thousand and twenty for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> But speaking of October, I mean, I finally got to come and see you, but in, you know, we, we, we were in the same place at the same time, and it was in yeah. your dining room last yeah. October. Um, so, you know, obviously that wasn't a time to talk so much no. um, because you were, you know, busy working. So can you start with a little bit of background on, you know, when and why you moved to Paris and some of the restaurants you were working in, actually, before you started Comice with your husband? Yeah. Um, well, to make a long story short, I was in Montreal for about 13 years, and my husband, who uh, had worked in California for a long time, uh, was very eager to move to France and work in kitchens in France. And we met in Montreal just before he decided to come to France. So we met in Montreal, and then two weeks later, he asked me to move to Paris with him, and I was like, no because we just met. And, <laughs> and then he kept asking and I was like, okay, he's serious. Over the course of a year, he kept talking about France, France, France. So I said, you know what, go and go and see what's out there and go and see if there are opportunities and then we'll go from there. And he came here in 2013 to work at La France for a while, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the three-star restaurant, which, was, which is, is and was on the 16th. And uh, it was through that that he made contact with the Sergent Recruteur, which is a one-star restaurant on Ile Saint-Louis, who at the time was looking for a head sommelier and a head chef because theirs were moving into opening their own business. And so we got mm. hired together and were sponsored. And we came in the beginning of 2014 to, to do that. So we came for jobs, basically. Which is quite rare, I would think. I mean, in terms well, of the way chefs make their way over. Yeah, it was it was just a once in a lifetime opportunity as a Canadian couple, um, you know, living and working in North America for our whole career. Um, you know, it's kind of the dream. You get to come to France and work and and live. And we really came here. You know, we bought a one way ticket. We didn't know if we were going to be here for two weeks or two months or two years or how it was going to go. And um, just sort of packed our bags and said, let's see what happens. 
And, we're and so how here. long did you you both stay at the Sergent Recruiter? We were there for about a year and a half. And then mm-hmm. um, that there were some projects affiliated with the Sergent Recruiter that started to kind of unravel um, for financial reasons. And our jobs got uh, eliminated. Oh, um, no. The restaurant ended up getting sold. Uh, yeah, it was taken over. And so we had to figure out what was our next step. We kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we've been doing this for so many years. We've done it in so many markets. And we kind of see an opening in France, in Paris, for something that um, might not exist yet, which is the idea of a warm, welcoming, sort of cozy um, ambiance, but still a fine dining restaurant, still refined, still elegant, still, um, you know, concentrating on details and, and, you know, sort of striving for perfection, but without kind of the formality that can exist in fine dining restaurants sometimes. Um, You know, we didn't want to go casual, but we didn't want people to feel like they had to behave a certain way or like be afraid to laugh or dress, you know, really formally. We just wanted it to feel like our living room, but with better food than our living room. (laughs) Certainly better design than most living rooms. It's much nicer than my own living room. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also in a part of town that is, has, you know, at some points been considered, you know, a a dining desert. Yeah. Um, It's in the 16th arrondissement, which, you know, I imagine has been both a blessing and and a challenge in some ways for you. Um, Yeah. Tell right about it. Um, There were a couple of factors. We were adamant about finding a space that was adapted to our um, ideas, one of which the the main deal breaker and the one non-negotiable thing was having an open kitchen that looked over the dining room. Um, We'd always felt very strongly that the kitchen should be able to see what's going on in the dining room. It's important for the cooks to feel a sense of uh, connection to the guests and to see what their work is translating to out in the dining room and not just to be like hiding in a closed space and kind of working um, without a sense of what it is that they're doing it for. I think Mm -hmm. also for efficiency of service, it was a big deal for us to have the possibility for Nam to sort of survey what's going on in the dining room and, and be able to sort of anticipate uh, calling tables and that sort of thing. So from a logistical standpoint, it was, it was something that we're very uh, taken with and this space happened to sort of provide us with, the layout that we were looking for more or less. And we looked at, I think, 52 spaces before <gasps> this one. Oh, so, boy. And not necessarily you know, in just in the 16th. We looked all over the city. We looked everywhere. And we'd actually made offers on spaces in, in the Upper Marais and also in the 8th arrondissement. So, uh, but they fell through for different reasons. And, uh, and then so this was sort of um, our last stand before we gave up. And it kind of worked out. So we're like, okay, this is it, you know. Um, obviously... It was important for us to be in a neighborhood where fine dining made sense, you know, where there was a certain clientele for it. And West Parisien is, is an area that does have a lot of um, sure. residents who do enjoy fine dining. And it's a bit curious that there isn't more of an offering, but I think that that has changed. There are a handful of, you mm-hmm. know, very high quality restaurants in the area as well. Um, I think it's just slow going because it's a very established sort of old bourgeois area that takes time like everything in Paris to, to sort of evolve, <laughs> but it is happening, I think actively. And, and do you think, I mean, based on 
from the time that you opened, obviously a lot has happened. And so, you know, your, your, your key diner is perhaps not the same as it was when you first opened, but is it a lot of locals? Do you get, you know, sort of West Parisian diners or are you getting people who are coming, who are traveling from across the city to dine just, just with you? It's incredibly mixed. There are some nights where, 90% 90% of the dining room is French speaking. There are nights where it's all people from around the surrounding areas. There are nights where it's people who have heard about the restaurant from other parts of the city or even other parts of France. Um, and we have a ton of traveling visitors also who come to the restaurant who have heard about the restaurant's reputation and, and are interested in dining with us. So they plan it in, in advance. In advance. Well, certainly having a Michelin star doesn't hurt, which... Well, uh, yeah. You know, it's part uh, of the it's part of the, I think, you know, uh, visibility of the restaurant to foreign diners. For sure. And was that something you both hoped for Kumis, you know, that, that, that you were you were aiming for a star? I mean, what, I, I know, I'm never quite sure whether that's the same ambition for foreign chefs and sommelier working in France as you know, it is for, you know, local uh, natives. For us, it was never about chasing anything. It was never about saying we need to get a star at all costs and we'll do whatever it takes. It was about saying we know that the work we do is at a certain level that, um, you know, it's a certain level of technicity, of commitment, of focus, of, you know, years of experience that lend lends itself to attracting the attention of a guide like the Michelin Guide. Um, now, what we do is based on what we're really seriously, genuinely passionate about doing. And so we're not doing it because we're looking to attract that attention. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that the work that we really love to do is sort of commensurate with what the Michelin Guide has tended to recognize. And the reality is that um, uh, in Paris, as foreigners, it wasn't exactly like an easy pass for us no. to open a fine dining restaurant um, and get taken seriously. So to be perfectly honest, the Michelin Guide was what sort of gave us the validation that we needed in the eyes of, you know, the global market here and and also for foreigners um, in in recognizing the work. That I mean, it was do. by by far one of the most exceptional meals I had in all of 2021, which is saying, I mean, which is wild because I tried to like quickly make up for all the lost time by eating at restaurants as soon yeah, as they sure. reopened on Mar- May 9th, <laughs> May 19th, yeah. you know, but like, regardless of, you know, of, of environments and, and atmospheres and style, there's just something so pleasurable about being taken care of sort of in this, this environment that, as you described, is kind of like a really polished living room, but cozy. <laughs> and you wouldn't yeah. be surprised if there was a fire going somewhere. You yeah. Know? Um, well, that, that was, you know, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. And I'm not just, know, I'm not just tooting your horn. I, uh, I know you do a fair bit of eating. <laughs> so <laughs> as my I digestion your... <laughs> can attest, <laughs> I, I trust your, I trust your words. I know, I know that you do the research on the ground. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it's really, it's, it's, we were just saying the other day, no, we had a couple of guests who came up to the kitchen to say hi to Noam and they were talking to him. It was actually fellow restaurateurs and, and we were sort okay. of exchanging a little bit. And he kind of looked at her and he was like, you know, we're just so fortunate to be doing what we do because we are genuinely passionate about it. Like mm-hmm. it's really hard work. We're really tired all the time. And 
sometimes in difficult times, we're like, why have we done this to ourselves? You know, whether it's COVID or strikes or whatever, but ultimately, you know, that is a, that is a blessing and a privilege to be able to do what you are keenly interested and passionate about doing. And, uh, and it's important to step back and recognize that regularly as you wade through the exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you both have a, you know, you added onto your, project by having a child throughout all of this. We so, did, yeah. Because we just I mean, weren't busy enough. We're tired <laughs> enough, really. Yeah. We just I thought, mean, like, why why have more sleep when we could have less? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 yet even even with that, even with the challenges you've had, because unfortunately fortunately and unfortunately, like before COVID there were plenty of other challenges. Yeah. Uh, the Paris the the, the Paris uh, uh, what do you call it? Sort of like the Paris well, experience, be. the, the yeah. strikes and the gilets jaunes, and then um, you sort of were impacted by all of that. Yeah. How do you feel running a, a restaurant, you know, sort of now versus through those times? I mean, is it just sort of like now you feel like if you've conquered that, you can conquer anything? I feel resilient. <laughs> I don't Good. have a choice. We feel <laughs> resilient. We feel... Um, Actually, interestingly enough, I feel like now, in spite of the ups and downs, um, now we kind of feel like we sort of found our footing in a way that we hadn't thus far. I think since, let's say, September of last year, since we were able to reopen the restaurant, you know, in decent conditions, with the exception of this past January with Omicron, um, we... um, we kind of found the schedule, the the vibe, the team, the thing that makes it sort of feel like it flows in a way that's harmonious and, and forward moving. Uh, there was, there were periods where we felt like we were swimming upstream a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, for a while we did lunch and then lunch wasn't really relevant in the area anymore after the yellow vest protest. So we had to pivot and we've had to make adjustments along the way as a relatively young business, but I think today we feel um, more solid, more sort of lucid about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And I think it feels more organic and real and, and as a result, enjoyable than it has in the past. Mm -hmm. I think we've always enjoyed ourselves to a certain extent, but it's come with, you know, a pretty healthy dollop of stress. And I think today we're sort of getting to enjoy more of what we do on a daily basis. It's, it's, we're also appreciative of the times that are, that are calmer when they happen. Sure. Sure. And, and of course those have been perhaps too frequent in the last couple of years and and not the kind of calm you've, anyone would hope for. Um, but you, you definitely have, I mean, I know you guys attempted to do, uh, or not attempted, I mean, you did it for a time, some delivery options during the first confinement and, you know, that was insane. (laughs) <laughs> it was insane. Well, it was insane because like, I'm amazed that anyone in the restaurant business like could get their mind wrapped around doing something like that. It was, and just, organizing it was, just, it. It was just a matter of survival. So we sure. were like, what do we do? We're going to do takeout and we're going to do comfort food. And I found myself bagging individual baggies of Caesar salad dressing at like seven in the morning, pulling an all nighter because our <laughs> oh first... God meatballs and handmade pasta 
option was we got like a hundred orders because people were just so desperate to eat something that they didn't cook. And we're like, Oh my God, how do we do this? It was just Noam and I, and we made like kilos of bechamel and kilos of bolognese and kilos of pasta. And we were like doing all the dishes. And it was, I never want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really last in the end. I, Cause I ordered it. I remember it being yeah. wonderful, but not wonderful for you. No. Well, you know, it actually was a very enriching experience and it really taught us a lot. And it was really, it was really fun in a crazy way. Sometimes um, we did it till May, I think of 2020 and then restaurants started to slowly reopen and then, you know, orders kind of fell off and we were like, great, let's go back to doing normal people like normal, you know, format of the restaurant. Right. Order. Normal quantities, normal. Yeah. Not like, scramble to make kilos of food put in boxes and i mean that is a that is what you know the french call a metier that is a separate that's a different it's a different job yeah job. absolutely and the to-go business that we know yeah or well, and that's why you with. saw and in fact i think you know you guys jumped right into it but there were some you know big multi-michelin starred restaurants associated with hotels who got into this sort of activity and it took them a long time to get up and running because you know they tried yeah. to do the packaging in some yeah you know excessively formal way but at the end of the day it's like people would have been happy with whatever well i think you know for an upscale hotel they have the reserves financially and and in terms of the team as well to be able mm -hmm. to sort of orchestrate that in that way um you know we're a small family business we couldn't we couldn't do that we couldn't bring in a full team and like make that work and and we certainly didn't see ourselves doing fine dining food to go because we just, you know, the whole the whole thing that Noam and I are passionate about is alaminu cooking. Mm -hmm. So to prepackage food that you want, you know, served in an alaminu way doesn't make any sense. And that's why we sort of decided to do like really delicious lasagna and really good, you know, curry and that sort of thing. Well, it was comforting while it lasted. And <laughs> certainly, it, I mean, in, in a way, you know, I, I, I kind of wonder, and maybe this is completely out there, but it, it felt like more people learned about you. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think it was, was, I think it was a window to the restaurant's existence for some people who otherwise yeah. wouldn't have necessarily known about us. And perhaps the people in the 16th, you know, decided in that moment that as soon as it were possible, they would come you know, eat what you guys really cook and, and the wines yeah. you do really serve. Um, speaking well, of. Actually, just as a quick anecdote, we just had a guest come last week for her birthday who was one of the guests who discovered the restaurant through the takeout, a really nice woman. And I remember distinctly that she um, had a tomato allergy because I remember like carefully creating a separate dish for her during the comfort food takeout stuff that didn't have any tomato in it. So when she came to the restaurant, she was like, she didn't think I would recognize her. I was like, hi, tomato allergy. And she was in total shock. <laughs> she was like, how do you remember that? I'm like, I don't know, but I do. <laughs> the the mind works in mysterious ways the things that we you sure. know we choose to remember um but I, I it's already been you know like half of our conversation and i haven't yeah, even talked about on. wine which is <laughs> no i just mean about about wine which is you know your expertise um i i hope we get to the point someday where we don't have to specify that the sommelier or sommelier is a woman uh, yeah. and and maybe we don't even need to do it now but i highlight this mostly because we're in one of the capitals of, of wine. France is a, you know, obviously this is a, 
uh, a, a culture entrenched in wine and with a tradition tradition of mastery and and certainly with well documented challenges for women in the industry. So I'm wondering because obviously you started in wine outside of France, but what yeah. has that process been like for you in your previous roles and then now as you're running the show for yourself? Um, it's actually been it's a it's been a very interesting evolution both culturally and just professionally because. For one thing, uh, you know, from the professional standpoint, you know, I started off as a, as a very eager and wide-eyed young sommelier and then sommelier. And then, you know, I started in New York. I continued in Montreal, studied in Montreal, and then um, worked and had great jobs in Montreal and then met Noam. And that's what made us come here. And I made the shift professionally to being a sommelier in a fine dining restaurant in Paris. And that was a learning curve because I realized that, you know, whereas in Montreal or New York, for example, where tastes are relatively democratic and people will sort of be open to drinking whatever from anywhere, um, though they have very strong French wine markets uh, here, foreigners come here to drink French wine and locals mm -hmm. want to drink French wine. There are exceptions, hmm. but they're much fewer and far further between than in North America. And so that was definitely a learning curve. And then, you know, over time, um, I've evolved into being a restaurateur and not just a sommelier. And that has also completely changed um, how I work because now I have to think about the whole picture. I have to think about uh, the business of viability, how purchasing is, um, you know, in line with our, you know, global needs and, and abilities to, to take care of, you know, our, our entire structure. Um, you know, I have to think about the payroll before I make orders. I can't just be like, oh, I want, you know, this burgundy on my list. And we're a young restaurant, you know, we're a young family restaurant. We're not a palace hotel or, you know, a very established chef who has 30 years of background of buying in France. And so it's still uh, four and a half years in um, a huge learning curve. And obviously all of the things that have happened in the last few years have also had an impact on how we go about, you know, doing our work from the wine side of things. And Honestly, I think the best is yet to come. I still have like tons of stuff I want to develop and 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 grow in terms of the wine program. And I, I just have to be patient and do it one step at a time. But it's it's been a very interesting and enriching process. And in terms of being the one in charge of the wine list, but also sort of the master of ceremonies in the dining room, uh, because you're the, also the one circulating and you're as much a part of that experience as the other servers. Sure. How have certain guests received you as, or, or do they sort of assume you're also the one in charge of the wines or like... Well, in the beginning, it took a while. In the beginning, we had a fair bit of press about the fact that I handled the wine, but it still okay. took a little bit of time for people to sort of catch on to the fact that I had sort of run, that I run the wine program. I think today it's established and a lot of people have read about the husband and wife team and the wife is the sommelier. And so it's a little bit less uh, of a discovery for people. They, they understand that coming in. So that's nice. Um, it's, rarely but can happen that guests will be like oh I'll I'll wait for the sommelier and I'm like I'll look around and I'm like okay hi what can I help you with and it takes them a minute to sort of oh oh okay and nobody is nobody is uh you know unpleasant about it or or nobody you know nobody comes to the restaurant and goes like no 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 I want to see the sommelier but it does happen once in a blue moon where they'll like frantically look for the guy in the suit that was just there taking their food order and like 
grasp for any man <laughs> to like come take over. It's rare, but it well, it's still, good. That's a relief. It's, it's a relief to hear happens. I well, usually try I just, to smooth it over. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like assuming that. Um, you know, I, I don't know, someone who works in a clothing store is necessarily female or, you know, these traditional, yeah. I don't know, these traditional roles. But I think we need to, you know, as diners also be better about our own assumptions and not go in. I don't think personally. Just, I think people are a little bit like, sometimes people are just a little bit uh, disconnected from what, you know, I, I don't even think it's intentional necessarily. I think it's just sort of like a, a reflex action. It happens just as often, if not more often, that people, when I come to the table, will ask me if I'm also the chef. Oh, so well, that's a, think, that's a positive. I think that it's just like, it doesn't occur to them that because I'm not in the kitchen that I, you know, might not be the chef. Right. <laughs> I, I'm right. not sure where these ideas come from. And that's okay. Um, you know, the other day I, I went to greet a guest and he was like, Bonsoir chef. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a first. I've been doing this for 25 years. No one's ever said that to me. <laughs> well, if, if there's going to be a first, it's going to happen in this country. I mean. Every single day there's something. I'm like, but oh, I I've love, seen but, it all, but I haven't. <laughs> but that's great. I mean, I kind of love that, that they there's an assumption, and it, clearly it wasn't a, a negative assumption. It was, no, no. I'm prepared no, to eat was, no matter what. He was super deferential, too. He was like, bonsoir, chef. And I was like, bonsoir. <laughs> like, it's true yeah. that there's that. that's another thing that's, that strikes me as being far more, I don't know if specifically French, but European in the way that people, when they go to these fine dining establishments, will refer to either the, the, the cook in charge or the, it, it's a much different relationship to the dining out experience. than I think most North Americans have at least. I think, from what yeah, I, recall. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because, and, and then there's another dynamic, which is the owner dynamic, which is really mm -hmm. funny because I, I am incredibly operationally active. We both are, we are there for the entirety of service and much of the mise en place. Now I was there for all of every day and um, I'll be serving tables and like I do everything. I pour water and I fold napkins and I pull out chairs and I clear plates. Like I started in this business as a waitress and I am still basically a waitress <laughs> and I love it and I enjoy the work and I find it stimulating and it keeps me fit and I, I get a kick out of it. And, um, and I also get a kick out of working with my staff who are younger and who have less experience and who learn uh, on the ground instead of me sort of top down telling them what to do, but not doing it myself. I think it's much more effective and much more stimulating for them. And it creates a really great team dynamic. And so I'll be running around the dining room all night and serving people and talking to them and exchanging with them. And then at some point, many guests will be like, wait a second, are you the owner? And I'll be like, <laughs> yeah. And they'll be like, oh my God. And I'm like, I'm exactly the same person I was 10 seconds ago. <laughs> Nothing I think it's changed. probably well, but I think it's the idea that wow, you're running this whole thing, and yes, you're two people, but they mostly are seeing you, yeah. and it just seems kind of like a miraculous <laughs> one woman show. Like wow, she's doing all of this and she's getting everything right and she's remembering and because it, as you said, it requires so much attention to detail. 
It does. Yeah. So Which I find very enjoyable. So I like to be very active in service. It makes me crazy not to get in hands on. And, and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, as long as I'm young and healthy, <laughs> I can keep well, doing of course, it. I'm, of course. I'm happy to, I'm happy to be there with my hands, you know, fully in, in the work, but um, it's just funny that the, the relationship dynamics, 99% of the time, it's just an expression, like a gleeful expression of like, wow, you're the owner. Cool. Let's exchange. What made you come to Paris? You know, people will get excited uh, about it. 1% of the time, people will not necessarily be so nice. You know, there, it happens that people are a little bit, um, you know, not appreciative of, of service staff or perceive them as like, a lower caste of society. It's uh, incredibly yes. rare, but there's a bit of that sort of like, oh, you're a service person. Well, you know, you're lower than I am. So I'm going to boss you around or kind of torture you a little bit. And it happens very rarely, especially in our restaurant, because we sort of have a certain dynamic and a warmth that makes people feel quite at ease. But when it happens and it happens to me because they don't realize they're the owner and I'll kind of like take things in hand and be like, you know what? We're here to have a good time. We're here to make sure that you have a good time. And I promise everything's going to be okay. And then they clue in and they're like, wait, you're the owner. And then they completely change the way they talk to me. And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've no. now seen the, 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 the true <laughs> selves, you know, who, yeah. they, who they bestow respect and politeness it's upon. In incredibly like it's a, it's a minority i'd say it's happened like three times you know well that's good that's good but four still, and a half it's, years it's still it's, disheartening that it happens yeah it's disheartening i i don't care if it happens to me i care if it happens to my staff because they're a little bit less in a position to sort of rein things in but i keep an sure. eye and if i see anybody and again it almost never happens but if i ever see anybody sort of trying to like steamroll anybody i'll be like let me get in there <laughs> like i'm going to take care of business and i'm going to make sure it's all going to be okay for everybody <laughs> and then it is well let's well, hoping anybody who's listening who has a tendency <laughs> to do this will you know shape up before they, yeah. they come back to to dine in paris but i yeah. i don't want to miss out on asking you specifically about some wine things because sure. your wine selection was so superb and i loved the champagne you chose during our meal because i remember i'm hoping i'm remembering this correctly but it was from the western part of champagne you know if if that's correct i don't know you're from you're, the south it was from yes. the south of champagne no but it's it's why have, it's, it's not, not Reims, about, it's not Reims, it wasn't, no, you know, the two big... No, what matters, yeah. it's not from these sort of prestigious uh, cities exactly. of Reims or Epernay and the surrounding areas. Um, it was from the Côte des Bals, which is in the south of Champagne, which is quite far removed geographically, uh, both soil-wise and distance-wise from the sort of more prestigious uh, areas that people know the big houses from. Um, and in the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, but especially 10 years, I think there's been a huge um, sort of, the word in French is engouement, but like a huge uh, excitement over the Champagne houses, usually younger domaine. Uh, or older domen that have been taken on by a, by a new generation and sort of revamped and and a lot of them working biodynamically or organically or with you know very sort of artisanal methods and what's interesting is is that for years the big prestigious houses have been buying grapes from those areas all along oh, yeah. but 
um, because Champagne is, you know, traditionally a grape buying area. It's not necessarily been a grower producer area. You know, the big houses buy grapes from all over the, the region. Um, and so it's, you know, nothing's really changed. It's just that the notoriety has in that. Well, they, know, they, they deserved it after all this time. I mean, yeah. They're, they're, you know, their grapes are worth more now and they're, and they're growing their grapes and making wine themselves instead of necessarily selling everything off. And it's, it's exciting. You know, those small producers are grower producers are now becoming an established reality in Champagne. And that's really important because, um, you know, I really appreciate Big House Champagne in that it, it's just such a special, celebratory, wonderful, um, you know, meaningful thing for so many people, especially in France, you know, that's something I've learned. French families have like a champagne brand that they will have adhered to for generations in their family. Absolutely. And they'll be like, this is the champagne that my grandfather would open when we would celebrate Christmas, or this is what, you know, we would drink at baptisms or christenings or, you know, bar mitzvahs or whatever. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that there's, there's something really important about that because it is it's part of that established importance of wine in French culture that totally um, surpasses the notion of a drink or a beverage. It's about much more than that. And I oh, think champagne hmm. is very much about that. It's it's about the experience and the memories and, and the generational meaning of a brand. And so the brands matter. But the grower producers are also really important because, you know, whereas brands tend to invest a very significant amount of their um you know, income in marketing, uh, the grower producers, you know, a hundred or 99% of what they're earning is going into the bottle. So, um, I just think quality wise, there's something really, you know, worth, worth discovering in that regard. So is that sort of your, your main criteria for, uh, or among the criteria you, you consider when you're choosing, even from other regions, you're sort of looking for a mix of, you know, super established that maybe some diners would recognize if they see it on the menu, but also a whole host of more small batch or small producer? Um, I don't usually work with super established wineries. Okay. Because um, in, the, in the sense like of, you know, maybe higher volume or industrial practice wineries, um, including house champagnes for that very reason, because I just think that they're really, really well represented in a lot of fine dining restaurants and have been for many years. And I think that what excites me is the notion of discovery or tasting something without that sort of um, veil of a brand recognition element to it. I really enjoy the tasting with your like heart and with your palate and saying like, I'm enjoying the flavor of this for itself and not because somebody told me that it's cool or I've seen it here. You know, of course there are people, especially French locals who will come and say like, oh, well, you know, I always drink Tatanger or I always drink Philippe Bonnard or I always drink this. And, and, and I have a huge appreciation for a lot of these champagnes. As a sommelier, I'm totally democratic and open to tasting everything and appreciating it, appreciating everything in a case by case basis. I don't have a, dogmatic approach to wine at all. I've never believed in doing that. I'm Canadian. <laughs> it's just not my thing. Um, I really believe in 
sort of forgetting about categories and just tasting case by case. And I don't care about looking cool or not because I have a certain name on my wine list or not. I, I, I feel like that's one of the liberties of having my own restaurant is that I don't really have to worry about trying to like follow trends or, you know, we just kind of hide in our little, in our little neighborhood in the 16th and we can kind of do our thing and we're not in like a hip area and I'm totally fine with that and happy with that. And so same thing for the wines. Um, I'm excited about representing, you know, smaller producers. I do my best to do that. I do try to buy from some regions that tend to be somewhat reassuring for a certain clientele that are looking for a certain um, drinking experience. We do have an established clientele that enjoys Burgundy, that enjoys the Rhone Valley, that enjoys Bordeaux. And what I try to do is I try to pick and choose small family producers who work in a sincere and authentic way within those established regions so that like I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone. They're happy Mm -hmm. and I I can sleep at night. <laughs> well, I hope you're sleeping at night. I mean, given the oh, amount no. of work you're you're doing, uh, but but also you're choosing in a similar way that people are choosing to come dine with you. Yeah, the you know the small, considerate, thoughtful, uh, family run in many cases or independently run operations, yeah. um, and so those go together quite seamlessly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's also something that I think has gelled for me more than ever. I think, you know, in the beginning, maybe we felt like we had to figure out what our, you know, I was saying earlier that we kind of feel like we found our footing in certain ways in terms of like the schedule, the team, how we're working. But I think also in terms of our focus and our ethos, I think we've kind of come to a point where we know who we are and, you know, today at least, and who we've been thus far. And we know what interests us and what doesn't. And like, For example, in our cuisine, you know, Noam's somebody who really likes to do something regularly and well. So, of course, we work with seasonal products and, of course, we work with as many local producers as we possibly can. And when I say local, I mean French, not local, like within five kilometers of the Indifference because, you know, obviously there are certain regions that grow certain things that other ones don't. Um, Of course. I'm I'm not looking for Seine Mountain lemons, you know. Um, (laughs) But he really loves to perfect a technique over weeks, months, and years, you know, like the handmade tagliatelle that we make, there's been such a lot of research and tweaking and changing and adjusting and developing and different drying and all these different things that he's, you know, done over the years. And I mean, it's just so interesting to see like this concentration of work that like becomes denser and denser in its sort of quality because there's been so much research behind it over years. So on one hand, there's a certain notion of like creativity, obviously, and, um, you know, inspiration, but also there's something very um, meaningful to Noam about working on something for a long time and developing it and deepening it. I think the word is deepening. And so we're not the kind of restaurant that looks to change their menu every single week or, you know, get as many sort of funky ingredients together as we Mm. can to be, um, you know, to make fireworks happen on a superficial level, but not have that depth of work behind it. Um, He's somebody who really, you know, likes to methodically work on techniques and develop and, and deepen what he does. And so we'll change the menu, you know, seasonally 
based on what's available, you know, um, but we're not going to be like looking to uh, shock and, and impress, you know, on a weekly basis and do this and that and change. And, you know, it's just not the way we work. And same with, with the wine, I just feel more confident than ever, you know, that um, what I feel really passionate about, if I can transmit my excitement about it, that that will be the best dining experience in our restaurant. And that may not apply for, another sommelier or another context or another restaurant. Maybe it's about the bottom line or maybe it's about getting the most, you know, fancy brands or the most luxury labels, or maybe it's about getting the hippest, most natural wines possible. And all of that has its place and all of that has its benefits and its disadvantages. But I just know, I just know where I'm at and it's about, you know, getting the maximum amount of pleasure for me and for my guests at the same time. And you've totally succeeded because I still think about the meal that we had. And I think you it, that tends to be harder to achieve um, as, a, as a diner, even where or as a restaurant owner, when you are constantly changing and doing what you described as sort of like these superficial fireworks, because we all know those of those of, you know, those of us who eat uh, at restaurants a lot and have sort of experienced a wide range of styles knows exactly what that looks like when yeah. there are some elements that are done beautifully and you might remember, but if the food is all about the sort of not posturing, but like, you know, trying to yeah. impress and flex a certain creative muscle, but without that substance, well, without you're going to pedigree or the substance behind it. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, so there are some, there are some chefs who are genuinely like that and they're just like pure creativity and explosive and want to change. But it's more rare I think, than I think people real like, yeah, like to admit. I think it really has to come from the heart and it really has to be something that's organic and, and sincere. I, I remember I actually, we won't get into this on a, on a deep level, but I, before pivoting into wine for many years, I've pursued a career in opera. I wanted to be an opera singer and I worked very hard for 10 years um, to pursue that, which is how I ended up in New York and then switched to wine because kind of hit a wall uh, quickly and effectively. Um, <laughs> and I remember in, in my studies as an opera singer coming across this quote, which I'm going to misquote somehow, but it was David Bowie saying something about how you should never try to anticipate what um, an audience's preferences or tastes might be because if you try to produce according to what you think their expectations are and you fail, then you suffer the worst kind of inward humiliation. Whereas Ooh. at least if you fail on your own terms and you know that you did what means something to you genuinely, at least you can go to sleep at night knowing that you tried what was really who you are, you know? And I, I really, that has continued to apply, I think, in my work in wine and in the restaurant business. I really think that, especially living in Paris as a foreigner, and especially being in a market where there's so much, um, you know, there's at any major city, fine, fine dining or any dining market tends to have a lot of trends and a lot of things that, you know, um, gain a lot of hype and, um, people will come here and they'll be like, oh, I've heard this place. I've heard about this place and I've heard about this place and I have to get in here. And this is the hardest reservation to get. And that's all really great. And I think it's also really great to sort of be kind of a little bit outside of that and um, just focus on the work, like on a daily basis. I think, I think a lot of those hyped places too, don't exactly 
look for that hype. I mean, there are some, you know, very established, reputable restaurants where there are there's total pedigree and chops. And, you know, I think someone let's sip team, for example, mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't do their work to garner that attention. They did their work to do their work and they continue to do that. And it just so happens that that comes with that attention. Mm-hmm. And I have so much respect for, for those restaurants who continue to put their head down and work and create employment and take care of their, um, you know, employees and create, um, livelihoods for people and and create an environment that is long lasting and enduring I, th- I think that that's like the ultimate dream is to create something that um you know has positive repercussions on many social levels and I, I think that's what a restaurant is I mean ultimately it comes from you know whether you're trying to um do your best to support your suppliers and do your best to support your staff and do your best to to support your guests and create an experience that is commensurate with their expectations because kind of a big deal to dine in a restaurant in Paris you know it's not it's not it is absolutely it's a huge budget and it's you know whether you have the means to do it or you've saved up an enormous amount of time to be able to do it we have a responsibility to people to create uh, an experience that that is meaningful well if only every single restaurateur in this city thought the same way. I think you would have a consistently better experience, but I think that's, yeah. that would be true for any city. Um, yeah. You said so many thoughtful and, and, and moving things just now. Um, and I would be, but I, and I, and I could have ended anywhere, but I, I'd be <laughs> remiss not to ask the question that I think our listeners are going to be asking, which is also what is the significance of the word commis? Because um, I feel like that's that's an important element to this story. Yeah. Well, so we got the name. Noam came up with it single handedly. We just we were like struggling. It's like a baby name. Like this no, this no. And then one morning he's like, "What about Komis?" I was like, "Great. What does it mean?" And he said, "Well, what it means is it comes from the Komis Agricole, which are gatherings of uh, farmers and." agricultural workers that get together to talk about their techniques and improving their trade. They've existed since the 1800s. They start in the Loire Valley. Uh, the root of the word is comitea in Latin, which means gathering. And uh, and so it's sort of an homage uh, to the farmers that we do work with or the wine growers that we do work with. It's it's an homage to their, to their work because their work makes our work possible. And, and, you know, you mentioned something earlier, which was that people sometimes are disconnected from the actual operations of a restaurant. You know, they're not thinking necessarily that the uh, they might look at the staff, the, you know, the front of house staff differently than they consider the, the people in the kitchen. Um, and I think that would probably apply to, you know, the relationships behind the scenes that they never necessarily see with the producers and the, the growers and the... Yeah delivery people and, you know, that whole chain. Um, And so I hope that everybody listening now, when they come to Paris, whether it's at Comis or wherever they go, are going to be thinking about that connection because it really makes all the difference. I think one really important thing to, to underline, and I think maybe it's not something that a lot of people talk about, is that those relationships are not always like romantic and fluid. Like it's really challenging, Mm -hmm. you know, we're a small business who, when things are difficult, it's difficult for us. And it's really like, it has repercussions on the supplier side and it has repercussions, you know, on hiring and it has repercussions, you know, financial and societal that are very significant. And, 
sometimes we have to make concessions and sometimes we have to make, you know, adjustments. And sometimes we have to, you know, this notion that like, it's just a perfect, happy rainbow where it's like, you know, I only work with small producers and I only work with organic products. And I, you know, I am a virtuous uh, <laughs> restaurateur. I just don't think that's realistic to be, you know, a hundred percent perfectly virtuous. It is an absolute goal. It is an absolute ideal. And if, as a small family business, we could achieve that utopia, I would be so happy. Um, in reality, it's, you know, a, a river with many different um, curves. Mm. We have so much desire to achieve a level of having the most um, profound relationships on every level of our restaurant. And that is what drives us. And then, reality is that we do our very best within that to make it all work and, and be in the balance. I don't want to, I don't want to come off as saying like, you know, it, it happens that restaurateurs will be like, I am, you know, an environmental saint. And, you know, I don't think you can really be one having a restaurant in Paris because fundamentally there's waste and, and sure. There's, no, but the idea is that you try to limit that and you're, you know, yeah. you're being respectful of the land yeah. and, um, and, you know, certainly if that, be and if that became a requirement, you know, how many places would have to shut their doors? 99%. I mean, right. So no, I mean, having, having your vision and your drive to do the best that you can do, I think is more than honorable and everyone really should go have at least one meal, one special moment at Comice. It was, it was beautiful and I cannot wait to get back. Well, thank you. This uh, I'm, I'm going to put it out there on the internet that maybe for my birthday, someone will take me, um, <laughs> you know, just a thought, someone who might or might not be listening. Um, but either way, I'm so glad that you are part of this city because it's, you know, dining is so tightly connected to, to Paris and this heritage and, and you're really part of that story and important to keeping it alive. So well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying so, because it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, that's really what we do it for is to make those connections with people and, and, you know, people like you who, who have like a real passion and an interest in it and, and are actively professionally and personally engaged in dining in Paris. And it, it's meaningful to hear. From but don't think I won't at some point talk to you about that opera blip yeah. in your career. So <laughs> I'll just come to see you and talk about it at, at, at Comis. Sure. Thank Anytime. you so much. Pleasure. That's the show for today. As always, thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing with friends. You can find all previous episodes of the New Paris podcast wherever you stream your podcasts and on World Radio Paris. If you're enjoying these conversations, please consider picking up a copy of the New Paris book or my recent release, The New Parisienne, from your local booksellers. Until next time. Bye.